Hello and welcome. I'm Harriet Minter and it is a truth universally acknowledged that a middle-aged woman in the midst of a life reassessment must be in need of a creative outlet. So I'm writing a book. Women's commercial fiction, aka chiclet, and because I know next to nothing about writing fiction, I thought I'd enlist some help. Each week I'll be talking to other authors about their experiences of writing for and about women. If you're someone who's looking at your life and wondering when they stop being brave enough to do the things that scared you, then this is the podcast for you. We'll be learning how to commit to the scary creative stuff, what to do when it all seems too much, and how you can turn that little creative dream into a full-blown creative life. Whether it's writing, painting, dancing or skydiving, I want this podcast to be something you listen to when you want to be inspired. And when you're done listening, you'll have some practical tips to take you forward. Also, being honest, I need your help. It turns out writing roughly 90,000 words of fiction is quite hard and takes a lot longer than I'd anticipated. So each week I'll give you an update on how I'm getting on with the book any problems I've run into and what I'm planning to do next. A bit of a podcast accountability space, if you like. In return, we'll finish each podcast with an exercise to boost your creativity for the coming week. And if you want to share how you're getting on for a bit of extra accountability, then come and find me on Instagram at Harriet Minter. I'd love to hear how you're going. This week, I'm declaring that it's a truth universally acknowledged that there are a few things more enjoyable than lounging by the pool in balmy weather with a cocktail in one hand and a pun-laden bonkbuster in the other. Yes, this week's episode is a pun-ridden orgy of delight with the wonderful Daisy Buchanan. Daisy's first book, Insatiable, is a full-on romp filled with longing, lust and sex parties. One of the things I love about Daisy's writing is that she makes me appreciate just how hungry we can all be for life, and it exemplifies the extreme pleasure that appears when we fully embrace our own desire. In our chat, we went deep into what it means to really write about female desire and why we need more of it. You'll hear us discuss our love for a dirty book and the impact these books can have on young women and their sex lives. And we'll look at just why I talk a good feminist game, but seem to keep writing with a male gaze. Daisy is an incredibly generous author and her love of writing shines through. We get to talk about the reason we both write, to explore women's lives and tell their stories. Here she is. Joining me on this week's show, I'm very excited to have one of those people that I've sort of seen throughout my whole journalistic career and I've been lucky enough to read her writing and I've been lucky enough to commission her to write for things that I was doing and I've sort of just loved her writing ever since I first saw it. She wrote some brilliant nonfiction books and then she wrote a fiction book and I thought, oh, that looks quite fun. I'll give it a read. And it just delighted me from start to finish. So I'm very excited to have the beautiful Daisy Buchanan. Hello, my love. Oh, Harriet, it's so nice to see you. And that glowing intro. Thank you so much. That's so generous of you. That's a heck of a thing to live up to. I will do my darndest. Well, I know you can, so it's fine. 
thank you so much for coming on and talking to me because I have to say I was really inspired or I have been really inspired by you over the past couple of years because I think it must have been about 18 months ago or so now I became aware of the fact that you were writing your first fiction book and you promoted it I have to say brilliantly absolutely brilliantly so if anyone hasn't seen Daisy's first fiction book Insatiable it has the most beautiful kind of bright orange cover with an orange on it and it's just delicious and succulent and delectable and you did this really beautiful Instagram campaign that I remember loving which was just lots of beautiful images and quotes about women and life and desire and sexuality and sensuality all in the lead up to the book and I was just basically drooling by the time it actually arrived I was so excited to read it. Um, So tell me you went from writing non-fiction to fiction. I wrote a non-fiction book that came out earlier this year. This is, I'm now trying to write a fiction book, which honestly I thought would be easier than it was, but there we go. You live and learn. Um, tell me a little bit for you about the transition. Did you know you always wanted to write fiction? Yeah, I don't know if this is something we have in common, but I love stories and I love mm-hmm. novels. And I think in the way that I'm not a foodie, I'm greedy. I'm not, I don't love novels in a smart way. I love novels in a greedy way. And I honestly think that the most special, useful thing any person can do beyond, you know, being an expert in medical science and that sort of useful thing is to tell stories and to entertain. And all I wanted to do was write stories. And I was terrified of it. I was so scared I might fail at doing this thing that I long to do. And I suppose like pretty much everything I do, the fear of not doing it just became greater than the fear (laughs) of trying. In my head, I thought, well, any story that I will tell, either it's going to be sort of wholly preposterous and unbelievable because I've made it up, or it's just going to be too obvious. And people will think, well, I could have thought of that. Why is she bothered to write a story about it? Oh, that struck a little little chord in my chord in my soul when you said it's going to be too obvious that fear that it's too obvious because I have wrangled with that one in particular in the last few days where I feel like everything I write is very very obvious <laughs> how did you get past that well something that I find really comforting and reassuring so for example I'm a such a sort of voracious passionate Marion Keyes fan and mm-hmm. I think she's you know contributed so much and she is not a guilty pleasure I think she writes about the smartest deepest darkest things with such lightness and she mixes the funny and the sad and the shocking I think she's just wonderful and one of the finest writers you know living one yeah. of the finest writers going but um there's a storyline in the next book and I was really, really struggling with how to kind of get the feelings on the page. And I had an urge to reread her book, The Other Side of the Story, which is, Mm. you know, classic keys. It's wonderful. And it's about, you know, loss and grief and death and shock and questioning the psychic world, which sadly I wasn't reading it for those themes. I longed to write a book on those themes (laughs) one day. But I was thinking, gosh, these observations and the jokes and the writing, they're so smart and great. But also, it's not every single line. The ones that sing need to sing. But there's enough of like, and then I went to the shops and then I turned the telly on. And, you know, you're allowed, like, 
in prose, you can write fine, beautiful, wonderful prose. And some mm-hmm. sentences are just going to be, you know, doing a job, being kind of workmanlike for you. And you wouldn't want that. And sometimes I get sent a lot of proofs. I'm very, very lucky. And it's a gorgeous, magical, wonderful thing. But I get sent, for, you know, things with a great swathes of sort of beautiful lyrical description. And I know some people, that's very much their back and they love it. But for me... I always feel that that sort of thing is much more fun to write than to read. And I need (laughs) propulsion. I want to be sucked in. I want to be taken on the story. And often it's the rhythm of the workman set, the work person sentences that do that and drag you in. And the sort of looking at the sky, so looking at the sky, jewels are like (laughs) clouds and there's a bird. Like, yeah, I just, I get held up. I'm impatient. That's really interesting because you also said right at the beginning you said I love to tell stories and I love to entertain and I do think there is a difference in people who want to tell stories to entertain and people who love to tell stories because they get lost in the language I can get lost in the language and I you know I have the kind of moment of sheer joy and sort of fist punching glory of writing a beautiful sentence and being thrilled by it but fundamentally I want people to read it and be like oh I can't put this down I've got to keep reading I've got to know what happens next do you think you fall on either side of that particularly I think for me I would say a whole life and I hate saying journey but journey as a working writer is from the start learning about what is and isn't for me and I think there are two parts of this the first one is I think you must one must always write to please oneself it's a noble goal to and I'm a hypocrite because I know I just said about writing to entertain but it's a good and lovely thing to want to write for other people and to you know, make dazzling enchantment and to sort of be, to do it in a selfless way. The rewards for writing are so varied and complicated and frustrating and nebulous that if you're doing it to please anyone but yourself, you are going to get resentful and frustrated and miserable. So with that in mind, I think if you want to write the dazzling sentences and if you want to write for you, then absolutely do that and be motivated by that glorious thing but I suppose the other thing I've got in my head is I'm kind of I'm writing for myself as the reader trying not always succeeding but trying to write something where were I to get it through the post I think oh this looks all right and not oh she's at the trees again isn't she That's so true. You do you want sort of something to land on your doorstep and be like, oh yeah, I'm up for this. Not, oh yes, I, I should read this, shouldn't I? But then, um, <laughs> but you know, one is allowed and one can write something that is so as propulsive and immersive and joyous. And I'm really bridling against the word cosy because lots of the books I love, cosy is the closest word, but there's something twee about mm. cosy that I don't think is fair and just misses the mark. There's an elegance and sophistication and a bite that I think people don't remember. And I'm not wild about a lot of, sorry, have, they've just been uh, reissued by um, WNN. And I'm not wild about the cover art, it's too cosy for me. But we can come to that about. Um, how we judge books by our covers and when you're sort of in that realm what you know and I really I have got so 
so lucky with my covers. It is like winning the lottery, truly, because I love them with all my heart and they have nothing to do with me. I mean, let's be honest, they are sexy covers. They're sexy covers. I mean, there's some brilliant art design going on there. There's this woman called Becky Gaia, and she is brilliant. And I remember, because we've just um, done the, the cover reveal for careering in these uh, <laughs> button times, I've been making some shonky Instagram reels. And I knew that Becky was going to be making the, the new the cover for careering. And I had an idea of what to expect. So I was really, really delighted with it. But honestly, with Insatiable, still now, and I think it's really changing and it's getting so much better for quite a long time in the realms of women's commercial fiction. I was imagining a sort of skinny, cartoony girl with long hair, maybe chasing a hat. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just so happy and relieved and delighted. And I was like, this is sexy. This is serious. This is sophisticated business. No one's lost their hat. Um, I wanted to, I, I, I am going to just follow up on the comment about cosy actually, because it really, it struck a chord with me because I have just come back from doing a writer's retreat. You can tell that I'm, I've thrown myself into this. This is what I'm like about everything. I get an idea and I just like throw myself into it a thousand percent and ask myself, what holidays can I go on based on this idea? So I've just come back from a writer's retreat and there was this absolutely lovely, lovely man on this writer's retreat, but he was in his late twenties and he loves his deep, dark literature, right? He loved uh, literature with a capital L. And I talked about my love for um, our beloved Marion Keys and got quite vocal about my view that if she'd been a man and writing about men, everyone would be calling her the next James Joyce and it's just because she's a woman writing about women they don't. Um, but he described my love of that particular sort of fiction as cosy fiction cosy fiction and I pointed out that actually this cosy fiction has run through the books that we have been reading for centuries that a cosy classic might be Treasure Island which isn't particularly kind of cosy but when you read it you have that cosy feeling to it why do you think we are a bit dismissive of this literature it's so interesting isn't it because Mm. as you were talking then something that I often think about is I personally I'm not a reader of thrillers I'm delighted by people who take joy in them I feel like it's probably coming to me you know I think in maybe 5, 10, 15 years (laughs) I'll have my like yes this is what I want Um, and you know I love a bit of um, classic Christie when I'm in the mood Mm -hmm. but more often not I just don't love misery and violence and murders and darkness and I think that life is hard enough for everyone and I don't really fully understand why you put yourself through that but I think (laughs) for a lot of people it's like bizarrely cosy I think it must be that people are weirdly comforted by you know plumbing the depths and knowing how grimy and unsettling things can be and then coming back in the room and thinking oh no I feel like the coziness of my actual life is amplified because I've been through this horrible dark experience but yeah I think into the sort of mid to late 20th century was the term like domestic fiction banded about and something that I think must be really close to your heart not to assume but it's so so recent in the scheme of things, that women have been permitted any kind of life 
beyond the yeah. home. You know, we've not been, we're so new to participating economically. I've just finished um, Lucy Mangan's Are We Having Fun Yet? Which oh, I don't know yes. if you've I have read, read. It yet. Yes. And I just through it yeah. and I love and it's so funny and it's so furious and it's yeah. the sort of thing I can see that kind of guy like just missing as being a bit twee and a bit cozy I'm like no it's such a brilliant brilliant observation about how how women are shafted and how the patriarchy yeah. persists even in households now just no one really notices why things have, have gone so badly wrong it almost made me want to, to protest I mean I don't think I want to have children and there is a bit of me that kind of thinks this is my protest I honestly <laughs> don't think any woman can or should have children under current conditions and you know I'm a an auntie yeah. of four there are so many women I love and adore who are doing it and I know also lots of you know brilliant co-parents and people who are really making it work, but also no matter how committed people are, society is just not set up for this. And what Lucy Mangan has done is written this really funny, furious, incisive attack on society and pointed out that we're storing up all of these problems for ourselves and how can we, we need to overthrow things. Or, Well, that's what I, I came away thinking about. I mean, she's not really... She's uh, more equivocal than that. I don't think yeah. she's advocating for an overthrow. I'm like, how is this book cosy when it has stirred me so? Well, I think that's also what I feel about a lot of women's fiction, which gets dismissed as being cosy, is that when you read it, the themes are not. The themes are not cosy. The themes are violent and dark and the best women's fiction I think and I definitely want to talk to you about this is in really brings out the shadow side of being a woman like the kind of the darker emotions that we go through the more difficult periods and I sort of I I am always then really confused that anyone can dismiss that as cozy that that's a sort of that that's a, a jolly read and I think it's because a lot of certainly for me a lot of the fiction that I enjoy the most there is a brilliant balance between that darker side and lightness like I think maybe this isn't a female trait it's not a female trait at all I can think of male authors that do it as well but certainly when I read about women's lives I think women are very often brilliant at finding the humor to balance out the dark we have all had to develop a gallows humor <laughs> as a survival tool we have we really have I said in my email to you, I really want to talk about, and we definitely must talk about the sex scenes in Insatiable because it is a romp. It is the most beautiful, glorious romp, and I love that. But it's Thank you. a romp on top of a woman who's going through massive emotional turmoil in quite a dark part of her life. How do you balance that, or how did you balance that, the dark and the light? I did want to say something that, is important to me. I definitely have moments where, for the most part, nearly everyone I've had a conversation with in social about has been so supportive and generous and lovely, and they have really enjoyed it. And I've definitely be. I remember, you know, the other books yeah. that came out around the same time. If 
there was a review that the other book that was like dark, serious, brooding, majestic, and insatiable would be the and finally in the review. It's like, this is fun. But then yeah, I wanted that. And the the readers I've spoken to, there are so many women who are not necessarily women who don't maybe feel like regular readers or who maybe consider themselves readers, but that there was something about that that they felt they could pick it up and touch it and make it part of their lives. Violet, I had in my head, is someone who, she just doesn't think anything can get any worse. She's in that weird state where she's so vulnerable and she feels like she has nothing, but also that strange sort of something broaching privilege and that she sort of feels quite tough and that her vulnerability is something that emerges and actually, that was the very first kind of sets of editorial notes I got when we were trying to sell it. And there were a few people going, she's just, she's a little bit, you know, wet isn't really the best word to use. But yeah, I think people, she's just too, it's not like heart on her sleeve. Like you can see her organs and her skeleton and yeah. that the, it was the emotional explicitness was a bit heavy and I had to pull it back a bit and I had to kind of work out a way to make her evolve and I think that hopefully the humor is part of that that I mean what I really loved about writing her was she I think she's funny and she can be bitchier and snarkier than I will ever allow myself to be in real life oh that's interesting do you think you know because so often we kind of assume that people's characters are them right so we make that kind of very basic assumption that we're only writing ourselves but I wonder, is for you, was this a chance not to write yourself, but actually to write in sometimes some of the things that you want to say or would have said, but because we live in a real world with consequences that we can't write, we hold ourselves back from? Yeah, I, and but there is something liberating about fiction because you know you're writing about humans being human and fiction is only ever good or interesting if you're writing about humans being human in a massively flawed way. And so... I think that is really liberating in a sense. And it's like emotional VR as well. I've sadly, I've never been part of any exciting, sexy orgy scene. I really wish I had, but also (laughs) I don't think I could have written that book if I was writing, describing something that I'd lived through and known. I've always loved, you know, dirty books and sort of filthy fantasies and making things up. And I also think that, it's a safe way of experience if you're, you know, being sexually explicit. I mean, I've also always loved a good dirty book. And I think from things that I've read that you've written, things that I feel like we had quite a similar experience at kind of our kind of teenage age of like finding the dirtiest books we could and reading them under yeah. the covers and then passing them around our friends at school and that sort of thing. And Jillies and Jackies. Absolutely. Every, every time. It's a love that never, ever ends. I have to say, I have tried writing a sex scene. It is hard. And that is not a pun. It's, it's, <laughs> it is, I mean, everything I wrote, I was like, oh, Harriet, this is just, this is so cringe. Do you have any tips? And what is it like when you give it to your first readers? So with Insatiable, I had recently reread um, a book called Look at Me by Anita Bruckner. It's about a youngish woman and 
she's in her 20s and her mother's died and she's sort of on her own and she's been left on those like weird mansion block flats at Kensington mm-hmm. Bloomsbury, you know, Bruckner, Bruckner land. And she becomes friends with this very glamorous couple. And I remember reading as a teenager and there's definitely a weird vibe and there's nothing explicit and there's a sort of a, an unspoken sadness and darkness but the book is very very funny um but there's sort of something in the air that is never really spoken of and you know the sex just sort of hangs around like smoke Mm. and they don't have sex but you wonder who who has thought about it who wants to and so I kind of went from there and thought you know what would it be and I did just I had to write as though as though no one would ever, ever, ever read it and almost sort of go to the bottom of the ocean with it and have this sort of... And I suppose as well I was thinking about, you know, there are some bits of Jilly Cooper. and I, mm-hmm. You know I love Jilly Cooper with I mean, all my heart. Um, me too. But I, do, I think her sex scenes, you know, audacious for their day. Now they're, there's lots of punning. Um, yeah. But there are some... Like, <laughs> I still remember there's that... There's a bit in The Man Who Made Husbands Jealous where I think that might be when we first meet the evil Ranaldini, who's oh, this terrible... Creepy, sadistic, creepy character. Creepy, creepy character. But also kind of hot. And you know, like, in real life, there is no way. But there's this one bit where noises are heard and um, Lysander, or Lysander, I've never quite decided how I would say his name, sort of goes for a look and... Ranaldini is in like a barn or some, somewhere where horses are kept and his demonic mistress Hermione who's this very <gasps> obnoxious opera singer Hermione's oh, very beautiful but obviously has a big bottom and she's in <laughs> nothing but like long riding boots on her hands and knees I think well Ranaldini's like whipping her she's doing horsey role play and I kind of thought I don't want to assume anything of Jilly's life and experiences, but I'm guessing that came from a hilarious and filthy <laughs> bit of her imagination. And if she can write that, you know, why don't I just sort of see yeah. see what happens? I suppose, yeah, I wrote to to titillate myself rather than to like to capture something or document something. I, mean, I think um, Shirley Condor, do you mean Shirley Condor? You wrote Lace? Um, yes, yeah who I actually referenced in Insatiable, I thought, for a bit of little Easter egg for anyone who likes that sort of thing. I think she said in an interview that she's he'd never be as grubby as to get turned on by her own sex scenes because, you know, you've got oh, to no. concentrate on what the characters are doing. Well, like, well that's a waste. <laughs> and I think if you make them a hot for you, you know at least one person's going to like them. That is true. I always talk about how I think I was very lucky in that really my first my first ever sexual education, thanks, Catholic Convent School, came from Jilly Cooper, for whom, even though now you kind of, if you read her books nowadays, you might kind of be horrified by some of the sex in it. Actually, all of that sex is written with kind of joy and excitement and sheer love of the act really and there's anticipation and horniness yeah and that was very much it with Violet I wanted a horny heroine I was still it seemed bizarre <laughs> that in the 21st century I was reading books where sex just sort of seems to to happen 
and this idea because we'd like I remember like you know one of the first things I ever learned about sex like well it's it's for men and it's what men want and it's all they want and they want it all the time and I think even now the conversations we're having and these devastating tragic events in the news cycle it's all sort of connected with this you know it's not a, a playing field of equals and I think if we can put about the idea that women are horny and women have sex drives and there are all kinds of issues that get in the way of us sexually expressing ourselves and of owning our desire and allowing ourselves to experience it but if we can make desire part of the conversation and be very very clear about the fact that women aren't consenting to sex in a grudging way if a woman wants to have sex she will make it known yeah I think that that's obviously not the biggest part of the conversation but it needs to be part of the conversation and I know that's a lot of weight to put on you and your sex scene and I suppose the (laughs) tricky thing I'd say write it for you and only you but have in the back of your mind you're not the Marquis de Sade you're not going to yeah for everyone who is shocked and horrified and offended there will be and you know 10 100 a thousand times as many people who are just so glad and grateful and relieved and I know that sort of that's a really contradictory thing but no I think it's a beautiful thing and actually it's sort of one of the things that I've noticed as I've been writing is um sort of one of the journeys that I had to go on personally as in my kind of my adult journey that's lovely j word um is kind of recognizing your own desire right recognizing my own desire so when is something my desire and when is something what I think I should desire because that has been put upon me Mm. in some way shape or other and what I've noticed in writing this book is when I just try and sort of knock it out again not a pun when I just try and knock it out and um like just write whatever comes into my head quite often what comes into my head is very male gazy right so Mm. it's sort of it's very easy for me to kind of fall back into a trope and to fall back into what I think or kind of what I was educated on, like in the glorious days of the 80s and 90s, <laughs> what I was brought up on, on that kind of, the thing that's most important for women is, does he desire me? Does he want me? How is he responding to me? Where's that competitive element? And the thing that I've loved in the writing is that when I kind of get into it, when I get into a flow, when I get into the character, I write about female desire and what women want and what my character wants. And that's so much more interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. And it's just a continual little reminder for me about how easy it is to fall into the what we've been taught versus what we want. Mm. Um, You are writing your second, no, you've written your second book. It's coming out in March, Careering. I'm loving all the one word titles. Is this going to be a thing? The working title of number three, which is uh, currently Causing Me Sleepless Nights, is not a one-word title. Maybe that's the trouble. <laughs> Maybe if I can find one, one thing. Find the word. Um, but yeah, I should actually, um, you know, to go back to the patriarchy, it's my husband who named Careering. And I think Good it's night. something that we both care about a lot, that really complicated, toxic relationship with work yeah. and how thrilling and how frustrating it can be and how we bring everything to it and especially doing a weird job like you know journalism in the broader sense where we're sort of told the work is its own reward and I just I remember 
kidding myself and telling myself that for sort of I was going to say for the first like three or four or five years but no I think like after about a year I was like <laughs> I would quite like the reward I, to be financial yeah. now because it's really hard <laughs> to live been on lovely. <laughs> but yeah going back to what you were saying about mm. how we write our characters and how much of ourselves we bring I've got two protagonists and it was really really challenging to to give them different voices. And oh, I hope that came out organically. But Imogen is 26, going 27. She has her birthday in the book. And then um, Harry, her boss, is uh, 47, 48. Um, Imogen was just kind of a bit too young. And I didn't want her to be quite as cynical as Violet. But then I think she is cynical in a very different way. And she's had... yeah a sort of a harder, darker past. And there's to do, to work in a world where she's sort of surrounded by posh girls and she just isn't one. And she's trying so hard to make a go of it in an industry where you just need so much parental support and money and room to fail. And she has absolutely none of that. And she's thrown so much sort of bad time after good. And she feels like she can't really afford to stop and she sort of backs herself into a corner and I think there there's a combination of being really bitter but also you have to keep deluding yourself otherwise you just you know lose your mind entirely and then to have Harry who in some ways is much closer to me now but also has the sort of earned confidence and also because various things have happened to her. She sort of gives all the fucks and none of the fucks. And maybe that's closer to me <laughs> now. But also, you know, maybe she's a, a woman I never... There, there were points where I I was very much in the gin. And, you know, yeah. there are real Harrys that I've worked with who I've loved, who I've, you know, thought, when, how, how can I be like you? When will I be like you? <laughs> I mean, that's... I think that's sort of... When you were doing that, I thought, gosh, that is like all of us as we age, we see ourselves at that horrendous struggle point. And I absolutely remember having these early on in my career as well. I was like, oh God, I just want out of this, but I've put so much time and effort into it now. What am I going to do? You're like, if someone had said, look, tomorrow you can get out of bed and you can be an accountant and you'll get 40 grand and no one cares that you can't do maths. They'll just teach you. Look at your calculator. (laughs) And it will be fine. And just have to put a suit on, stay in the chair, 40 grand a year, give up all your hopes and dreams, but, you know, safe. Yes, I would have been yes, so please. Happy. Take it, lovely, done, thanks. So tell me finally, like, you have, you did do the unsafe career, you worked your way through it, you got through it, you now have an actual career as an actual author. Would you have believed that at 23, 24, and what is it like? <sighs> I'm not sure I believe it now, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I never, ever, ever want to take any of this for granted. And you know what? I think about this all the time. I'm so lucky in that I've written a handful of books now yeah. and I've done some like ghostwriting and I've helped people with their memoirs. And even before um, I wrote nonfiction that sold in a very moderate way, the scary thing is, I really, really, really hope that I write other books people like. I might yeah. not. There will be books that I write where if I'm really, really lucky and I keep getting to people that, oh, 
she's gone off the boil a bit. That's not as good as I. <laughs> so I think I've got to keep remembering to be very, very selfish at my core and do it for me and do it for the stories. And also, I'm sure you mm. know this from publishing and, and the work you do and the life that you have. But now more than ever, there are so many public things you do. And yeah. the publication period, um, there have been moments where I remember when I was at Bliss, I wrote a feature about um, a company that you could pay for like weird experiences and it was like be a star for a day and you'd have like a fake red carpet outside your birthday and have loads of photographers (laughs) or even like you could pay to be chased by fake paparazzi like oh what about that (laughs) but that's kind of it is that I have a the odd weird moment of like put a frock on and do a bit of chat and I just you know and I feel like a competition winner and it's so odd because I think the whole time of, you know, glass ketchup bottles and it all whooshes out yeah. and you feel like, oh, that's that's too much and it's sticky and overwhelming and very, you know, everything <laughs> now tastes of ketchup and I, I don't feel very well and I don't know what to do. And then five minutes later, you're like banging the bottle with the heel <laughs> of your hand going, why is there any more? And so... I have definitely had moments of taking the public side of things too seriously. Again, I think, you know, the enormous, enormous good fortune. And I don't want to be like disingenuous. I'm so lucky, but I am so lucky. I don't... A lot of the good things that have happened to me have nothing to do, or little to do with my, my skill as a writer. And they're very much connected with you know, the generosity of other people and sort of Mm. things that have come my way and chance. And I think that you make your own luck. And I think it's really hard with writing as well because we do it so privately. It's one of the most intimate things we can do, but then we all do it in the hope of making it public. And there are lots of, there are just lots of contradictions and lots of cognitive dissonance in the whole, (laughs) whole thing. Yeah, and I suppose now, as I am, you know, so sort of scared and daunted and worried that I can't do it again. I was going to pull you off on that because you said, oh, you know, it's, we're in the right place at the right time. We have a bit of luck and others are generous to us. And that is all true and it all helps. But fundamentally, you wrote the books, you put the words on the page, you did that. And... And you know, that's the thing I have to remember. Weirdly, not every time. I think it's also really important to remember, and I always need to remind myself of this, like, other writers, I do think um, it's like that Victoria Wood sketch where she talks about accidentally writing a Mr. Men book by brushing past a keyboard with her bottom. But <laughs> it's not a sort of perfect flight of the bumblebee. Tra-la, the words are flowing. It is just lots of showing up and sitting down and staring. I think because we both do the London Writers Salon, don't we? Although I love a bit of London Writers Salon. We're going to get them on the podcast because I love them. Um, they are just fantastic. But that, like, look, you can write or you can sit here, but those yeah. are your options. And that's not the, it's, you know, you just, I'm a plodding ox. 
And that's when you're writing all that brings us back to and then they went to the shops and then they sat in the chair. And yeah, so much of it is you want to be a firework. You want to be this magical, spectacular, dazzling display of writerly brilliance. Mm. But yeah, it's not the kind of, you know, stunning, shocking, dazzling, magnificent talent that gets you there. It is the plod. It is the methodical oxing. I love that. And I think that is a beautiful point where we've come full circle, actually. We've come beautifully done. Love that. It's like you're a pro. It's like you've done it before. Um, <laughs> Daisy, thank you so much for talking to me. If you don't actually already listen to Daisy's brilliant podcast, You're Booked, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's so delightful. It's just brilliant authors talking about the books they love which is in itself a genius idea. Loved it. Um, So please do go listen to it. And if you haven't read Insatiable, you can buy it now. It's joy. You're going to love it. Uh, And Careering, you can pre-order. It's out in March 2022. And pre-ordering is basically like a gift to yourself. Every time I pre-order a book, I think, oh, it's nice. I'm quite excited to read that when it appears. Forget about it. And then suddenly one day a present arrives on my doorstep. From it's me so to me. true and it's lovely to do it from indie bookshops as well I say this because yeah. about a month ago I got a package um that I wasn't expecting and I had ordered um brilliant Bob Mortimer's um biography <sighs> called And Away from a really lovely bookshop called Fox Lane Books and I live nowhere near Fox Lane Books but they do deliver <laughs> and it was signed and I was like, yes, well done, past me, good work. <laughs> Thank you so much for your kind words. I've had such a lovely time and I genuinely feel more more enthusiastic and positive about the next book. We've just got to nail that title. You, one word, one word and you'll get it. Fabulous, Daisy. Thank you so much. It has been a joy. That was the brilliant Daisy Buchanan, author of Insatiable, which is out now, and Careering, which you can pre-order as a gorgeous gift to yourself immediately. I thought in honour of Daisy, we should have a pleasure-themed creative confidence exercise this week. The good news is that this exercise involves chocolate. Hurrah! Or if you're not a chocolate fan, strawberries or mango work equally well. Basically, you just need something that tastes delicious and has a feeling of happiness about it. Go with whatever you fancy. If you really want a shepherd's pie, that can work too. The aim of the exercise is to use the experience of eating the chocolate or whatever you've chosen to spark a creative endeavour. It might be writing, but it could also be art, sculpture, cross-stitch, interpretive dance, whatever suits you. So here we go. Close your eyes. Take a square of the chocolate and pop it in your mouth. Then rather than gulping it down, allow the chocolate to melt on your tongue and notice what comes up for you as it melts. Are you reminded of a particular moment in time? A particular place? Does it create a sensation in your body? Do you see colours? Is your sense of smell heightened? Does it bring up any emotion for you? Use whatever you feel as the jumping off point for your piece of creative work. I'll be doing it too and I'll post what I come up with on my Instagram at Harriet Minter. I'd love to see yours too so do please tag me. And if you get nothing, that's okay. Have another piece of chocolate. 
hope you've enjoyed this show. It's new. And one thing that really helps us is if you rate, review and subscribe or follow, is it now? I think it's follow, rate, review and follow. What that means is that other people can hopefully discover the show too. And we'll get an Instagram filled with people doing amazing chocolate inspired art. See you next week.